Good morning, or good evening, if you happen to be tuning in when it's not Sunday morning. We're glad you have joined us here at First Presbyterian Church of Greensboro. <clears throat> Before I get into today's lesson and um, scripture reading, I might remind you that on Wednesday evenings, we're having Vesper services still. They are online, but you can tune in and join us, and we're making our way through a number of sayings of Jesus found in the Gospel of John. And this coming week, I'm going to be looking at the 21st chapter of John. There are several things that Jesus says in that chapter, but I'm as interested in why they are said as in what's being said. And this is sometimes called the epilogue to the Gospel of John. So uh, I invite you, if you tune in, have your Bibles with you, it will help in the discussion and presentation. If you have not been with us for the past several weeks, we are in a series of sermons looking at the letters to the seven churches of Asia found in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. Letters that are in a sense dictated by the risen Christ who appears in a vision to John of Patmos while he's exiled for his faith on this little island in the Aegean. And Jesus tells John to communicate to the churches, the seven principal churches of Asia Minor, uh, messages that are directed to them specifically because of their own circumstances, their own failings, and their own strengths. These letters were shared with uh, each of the churches so that they not only heard the one directed to them, but they could also learn something from letters that were directed to others also. And I think that remains true for us today in the church. Uh, whatever our church may be, whether we're in this congregation or another, these words of Jesus, I think, apply. And they give us clues and insights with respect to what Jesus expects of those who bear his name. We all have expectations of the church. Um, no matter who we are, no matter what church we're a part of, we have our own expectations, wishes and hopes and dreams for the congregations of which we are part. Um, but those expectations are surely trumped in light of what Jesus expects because he is our head and it is his name that we bear. So we continue this morning. We've looked already at the church, letter to the church at Ephesus and uh, Jesus first off says the most important thing is your love. What is your love like? Your love for your Lord, your love for your uh, fellow man. Love is preeminent, and that is the first thing in the first letter written here to Ephesus. And following that, we look at Smyrna, and we learn that we not only have to love fervently God and neighbor, but secondly, we must be prepared, if we are disciples of Christ, to suffer when called upon to do so. Now, our suffering may not be uh, our actual giving up of our life, as was the case in this persecuted church, uh, at the time that John is writing uh, but we may have to give up something our popularity our prestige our friendships on occasion uh, if we follow faithfully Jesus and own his name then we're going to be in conflict uh, with those around us in many ways politically economically religiously and what have you but we must be prepared to suffer courageously if called upon to do so second we are also to be people who are governed by the truth. We are to respect the truth. We are to speak the truth. And we are to expect the truth from one another in our churches and in our communities. Without truth, we are not destined to survive. So that was a letter to the church at Pergamum. 
And then last uh, time we looked at the letter to the church at Thyatira, where holiness is expected of his people. And by holiness, it's not just a, uh, a, an indication of one's personal piety, but the holiness means that we are set apart. We are distinctive people, and we're distinctive not because of how we look or who we are. We're distinctive because we are endeavoring to be obedient to God and to be followers of Jesus Christ. Well, today we come to another uh, letter. And this is addressed uh, to the church in the city of Sardis. And what we're learning here, I believe, is that Jesus expects our faith to be genuine, not artificial, not a pretense, but genuine. genuine. Our faith is to have a vitality. We're to be alive in our faith. And we're to be vigilant about protecting our faith. And so that's the message we're going to look at. And this comes from Revelation, the third chapter, verses 1 through 6. Let us give our attention once more to the reading of God's word. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a name of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is on the point of death. For I have not found your works perfect in the sight of God. Remember then what you have received and heard and obey it and repent. And if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Yet you still have a few persons in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. If you conquer, you will be clothed like them in white robes. And I will not blot out your name from the book of life. I will confess your name before my Father and before his angels. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Lord, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts find acceptance in your sight, for you are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. The letter to the church at Sardis. In spite of uh, their many failings, in each of these letters, Jesus has something ordinarily to say that is positive, that commends them for their faith or their works or their spirit. And so the question might be asked, what is it that Jesus finds here in Sardis that is commendable? And the answer is, hardly anything at all. Uh, there's not much commendable about the church of Sardis. She very much resembles the city of Sardis, and about that we need to know much. Sardis was a city that had a great reputation, a great past, but her future is in jeopardy. Sir William Ramsey says of Sardis that this is a melancholy contrast between past splendor and present decay. Indeed, the history of uh, the city of Sardis would have provided instruction for those who are listening to this letter if they only remembered and learned from their own history. And much of the language here reflects their past history. 700 years before John had written these letters, Sardis had been one of the greatest cities in the ancient world. From here, the king of Lydia ruled. It was a magnificent, a wealthy, luxurious city. My mother used to speak of someone who was extremely rich, and I haven't heard this uh, 
this phrase used in many many years but she would say that someone was rich as Croesus I had no idea who Croesus was but in doing some research on Sardis I learned that Croesus was one of the great Sardian kings 700 years before John is writing his letter and he was so wealthy and had such a magnificent city because he collected on all of the gold that was shipped through his region down the Pactolus River Sardis was actually two towns there was a Sardis that was down in the valley below the mountain and then up on top of the mountain on a plateau there was a fortress and both of those comprised the city of Sardis this was felt to be an impregnable fortress so the people could retreat there they were safe in the secure secure no one could climb or scale the walls leading up to this fortress and they were safe or at least so they assumed the problem that Sardis has is her wealth and her imagined safety had made her the victim of her own good fortune according to William Bar Barclay Solon one of the greatest and wisest of the Greeks came to visit Sardis during the reign of Croesus king of Lydia uh, king of Sardis and he observed that the people were blinded by their own wealth their, their extravagance and they had in the process grown soft and degenerate and they were not all that they seemed to be on the surface and Solon issued his famous saying uh, while he was visiting Croesus uh, in his lifetime and what he said was count no man happy until he is dead and what he meant by that is your fortunes can change so quickly that you'd better not consider yourself arrived or content until you get to the end of your life because many things can happen that will sap your strength and destroy you and that is what was happening actually in Sardis Croesus confidently believed that no one could defeat him with his fortress on the mountain and so he engaged Cyrus in a battle in a warfare Cyrus was the king of Persia now if you remember the story of the uh, defeat of Babylon when the Jewish exiles were there Cyrus was the leader that defeated Babylon he diverted the river Euphrates his armies walked in on the dry riverbed into the city and they captured it so Croesus king of, of Sardis is engaging uh, Cyrus of Persia in a battle and so he goes and he consults with the oracle at Delphi and the oracle says to him that if you cross the river the river Hales you will destroy a great kingdom so Croesus is thinking ah, I will destroy the Persians so he crosses the river and he attacks but what's going to happen is he's going to destroy his own empire because Cyrus and the Persian army advance on Sardis where they've all retreated to the mountain fortress and they observe they lay siege to the city for 14 days and Cyrus tells his troops if anyone can figure out how we can get into the city there will be a reward for you so one of his soldiers was keenly observing he saw a Sardinian uh, soldier drop a helmet accidentally off the side of the fortress <clears throat> he also watched and he saw that farther down the cliff the soldier emerged at one point got the helmet and went back so the soldier knew there was a way to get into the city that you couldn't see from down in the valley there must have been a way and so he told uh, Cyrus about this and Cyrus sent that soldier and a troop with him 
they scaled the mountain up to a certain point but they found a crevice where you could get into the mountain and go up to the city and when they got there the city was unguarded they believed no one could attack them or get into the city and so they captured uh, this now this is all reported by the Greek historian Herodotus and it makes for a fascinating story It'll make for a great movie someday I would think as well but Sardis falls because of its lack of vigilance its assumption that it was safe and secure and no one could defeat them it was living on its reputation and their reputation was not going to save them two centuries after this Sardis really disappeared from the pages of history but then Alexander the Great comes along and Alexander makes Sardis one of his principal Greek cities and restores its fortunes and uh, when he dies two of his uh, generals vie over capturing Sardis for themselves Achaeus and Antiochus Achaeus with his troops uh, captures the city takes refuge in the fortress Antiochus remembering the history of Sardis there must be a place to get into the city from the cliff sends troops up once again and it happens all over again they enter the city of Sardis on the mountain no one is guarding the city they're thinking they're self they're safe and again Sardis falls to Antiochus because they forgot their own history there's a common saying that eternal vigilance is the price of liberty but I would say that eternal vigilance is also the price of a vital and effective and lasting faith we can't take our faith or our service to Christ for granted by the end of the first century Sardis had become a part an important part of the Roman Empire and in the early days of uh, Anno Domini if you will uh, there was a great earthquake Sardis was destroyed by this earthquake as was one or two of the other cities we're looking at there were 12 uh, cities major cities of Asia Minor present-day Turkey that were destroyed by that earthquake it's the first earthquake that is recorded in secular history in the year AD 17 Emperor Tiberius helps the city to be reconstructed and built and so once again it's a city that has a name for itself and one of the things that made Sardis famous if you're from Greensboro you may can identify with this is it was a center for the woolen trade they made textiles and fabrics beautifully colored fabric fabrics that went all over that region of the world and that was its glory its textile business its clothes that they manufactured so it remained a city of importance cultural importance and yet at the same time it was degenerate and in decline because the more wealth the people had the more they were at ease the more they took for granted their own future which was frankly in jeopardy now we may have missed some of this significance the significance of this this wording because we may not have known the history but when the recipients of this letter heard Jesus saying wake up and watch be on guard because I'm going to come at an unexpected hour and we can assume maybe in an unexpected way don't be so secure and uh, secure in yourself and the fact is Jesus is telling the church like the city that you're living on your reputation what are you doing now is your faith really alive and well or is it only a pretense 
a hypocrisy. The church in Sardis surely resembled the city of Sardis. They mirrored each other. And unfortunately, they had grown lethargic, lax morally and spiritually. And if they were to survive, they had to be aroused. They had to wake up. They needed to be revitalized, revived, if you will. Our congregation is a part of the Matthew 25 effort in the Presbyterian Church USA, where we commit ourselves, and our session has approved this, to work to end racism and poverty and to restore vitality to our congregations. It's still important to be a vital congregation if we're going to impact the world and society. And so this letter to Sardis prompts me to ask of each of us, of our congregation here, and of the church beyond here, even of our denomination, are we alive or dead? And how do we know? Are we living off our past reputation? I can talk for hours about the history and the glory of the Presbyterian Church and what it has done for Christendom, what it has done for Western civilization and America in particular. I can talk about how our ancestors risked their lives and their fortunes in defense of the gospel and in pursuit of liberty. I can tell you how our forebears in the Presbyterian Church helped to shape this republic, its laws, its institutions, how they built schools and churches and colleges and orphanages all across this land, how through education they've equipped women and men to serve in positions of leadership in every arena of our um, life together, in law and politics and military and business and industry and religion, international relations in the arts and in every liberating movement that's come down the pike that has liberated minority people, our church and our forefathers have been very much involved in that. But ask me to talk about our history because I'm not so positive about our future. I know our future is in the hands of God, but I see in the church today, I see in the denomination, I see in most of us a lethargy, an apathy, a media, mediocrity, if you will, that will not ensure our future. Yes, we have a glorious past. This city does. This congregation does. A glorious past. What we've done, what we've built, how we have ser served. But what about the future? Are we relying on the past? Or are we in our own time being faithful and committed and vigilant? A few years ago, the Presbyterian Church USA celebrated its 325th anniversary as a denomination in America. But I wonder, will we still be a denomination? Will we be a vital church 300 years from now? And in just a few years, this congregation in 2024 will celebrate its bicentennial. Established in 1824, but will this church be around in 21? 24, 22, 24. Paul writes to Timothy at one point and he says, he warns him that in the days to come, many people will have a form of godliness but will deny its power. They will go through the routines and the rituals of religion, but their discipleship will be a show. A show. Their membership in the church will not matter any more than their membership in any other club or organization. 
They don't take their faith seriously. It's not a vital thing that actually shapes and affects their living. They resist, they resist the demands of the gospel. They violate its standards. Are they merely deceived? Are they frauds or hypocrites? Why is there such a disconnect between what we profess when we gather in worship and what we practice when we're outside the walls of the church? Has our vitality gone away or is it still there? Can Jesus Christ count on it in you and in me and on us together? Now the lone redeeming factor in this church in Sardis, the only thing positive Jesus says about them is that there are a few people whose clothing has not been soiled. They've not given in to the ways of the world or the ways of lethargy and apathy. They've remained faithful. And indeed, this is a theme throughout the scriptures. There's always, it seems, a remnant that remains faithful. But God still judges the people despite the remnant who are faithful. And that is what Jesus is saying about the church in Sardis. Despite the fact that a few are faithful, most are not. And judgment will descend upon them. The problem in Sardis is not heresy. That's the problem in some of the other churches that are being addressed. Their problem is rather their superficiality, their lethargy, their apathy, their self-satisfaction, and false sense of security. So what are they to do? Well, thankfully, there is a minority, and I'm thankful that there's a minority in most churches, and especially in this congregation where we are right now. There's a minority of members who are faithful. They're concerned about the mission of the church. They're concerned about its education. They're about its worship. They're concerned about its facilities and its fellowship, its faith. They give their time and money and energy sacrificially all the time so that the church can be effective. But I want you to know, it may not be a remnant, but it is a distinct minority in this and in most churches. And that's a dangerous thing to realize and to accept. So many people who fill the roles and the pews of various churches, including our own, are Christians in name, but frankly, you, they're indistinguishable from other people who make no claim to follow Jesus Christ. The letter to the church at Sardis concludes with a promise, a couple of promises. Jesus promises that those who have not soiled their clothing will walk with Jesus. Keep in mind that uh, these people lived in a town like ours here in Greensboro that uh, was very much concerned in textiles and in clothing and what people wore. And so that's an element that comes up uh, in this particular letter. And Jesus says, you'll be given white robes. That's a sign, a, a, a festival garment, a sign of victory and celebration. In the apocalyptic literature uh, of Revelation, white is used as a symbol of purity throughout the book, really. John speaks of white robes and white stones and white clouds and white horses and a great white throne, which is not to say that white is better than black. It's just a symbol of purity in the Bible. And unfortunately, some people have taken this and tried to apply it, apply it to men and races, that one is purer than another, which is not the case. 
What is more, Jesus promises that those who are faithful, those who remained unsoiled by the world, will know that Jesus will confess their names before the Father and before the angels, even as they have been willing to confess his name. If only they will remain vital and vigilant about their faith. Time and eternity will dictate whether or not that happens. Well, as we draw this to a close, let me say, what do we do? How do we respond? We respond by obeying the commands of Jesus. Look at the imperatives that are used here with the church at Sardis. Jesus says to them, wake up. That's a command. That's not simply a statement. Wake up. Strengthen what remains, what has been entrusted to you. Build upon it. Remember. Remember what you have received. And obey and repent that is Jesus's command to us and to all churches that want to be vital and effective in their work that we obey the Lord of the church and turn our congregations and ourselves around when we're growing lethargic and listless in service to Jesus Christ let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches